Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced and presented by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin Nations land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. Australia is in the midst of a cost of living crisis and none are feeling the pinch more than the millions of people who rely on social security payments as a sole or primary source of income. A 2022 report by the Australian Council of Social Service and the University of New South Wales identified that 3.3 million people, over 13.4% of the population, live below the poverty line of 50% of median income, and most of these people are welfare recipients. Despite Australia being a signatory to the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which includes the right to social security, Anti-poverty advocates argue that the provision of social security in Australia is far from adequate, with serious consequences for welfare recipients. In today's episode, I'm joined by Erin Brown, Melissa Fisher and Mel, all of whom have been engaged in anti-poverty activism based in their lived experience navigating the social security system. Erin is a disabled postgrad uni student, long-term job seeker recipient and anti-poverty activist from Wollongong on Tharawal country. Melissa is a disabled artist who currently relies on JobSeeker and lives in Adelaide on Ghana country. And Mel is a PhD student and disability support pension recipient researching housing and the welfare state and living and working in Ninjin, Brisbane on unceded Yagara and Turbal lands. This episode touches on some distressing topics, including experiences of sexual assault. If you need to talk to someone, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. That's 1300 659 467. You can also access 1800 Respect, the National Counseling Line for Sexual Assault, Family and Domestic Violence on 1800 737 732 for support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. One final heads up before we get started. There's a bit of fluctuation in sound quality at a couple of points during the discussion, but I promise the content is worth the listen. If you want to listen back, you can always head to 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line to catch up on anything that you missed out from this program. Hello, Erin, Mel and Melissa. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, no worries. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, of course. I mean, I feel like I've had the pleasure of engaging with some of the incredible advocacy that all three of you have done through both writing and statements. And I was hoping that you could maybe introduce yourselves in a little bit more detail to tell us about how you came to engage in anti-poverty advocacy in the public sphere. Maybe, Melissa, do you want to go first and then throw it to someone else? Yes, I'm an Adelaide artist who's also disabled. Um, Basically, I got thrown into it after, so I was a carer for 22 years from the ages of 12 to 34 when my mother, who I was caring for, passed away. And then I got put onto JobSeeker and realised how impossible living on JobSeeker actually is. So... I started speaking up about it, um, telling people that my health and other issues like were literally getting worse because of poverty. 
and I ended up writing for The Guardian a few times and just using my voice to reach out to other people. I think that's been very freeing, knowing other people are going through the same as I am. I'm Erin. I'm a student student studying a master's degree. I've been on income support for nearly 15 years, end of this month. New start slash job seeker for the last six. I'm from Wollongong, New South Wales, which is on Darable country. And like most, I'm disabled. I've got mental illness, migraines and neurodevelopmental, basically autism. I've been engaging anti-poverty advocacy for about the last three and a half years since um, Luke Enriquez Gomez wrote an article for The Guardian about people trying to survive on the sub-poverty New South Wales. And I've just been doing it ever since then because no one living in a country as wealthy as Australia should be living in poverty. Because basically Bob Hawke in 1987 said, that by 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. Well, it's been 35 years and nothing's changed. My name's Mel and I'm currently doing a PhD in sociology in Mianjin, Brisbane. And it's about social housing, so how people make a sense of home in social housing under residualisation, which is the underinvestment and targeting. and I'm sort of achieving like this tentative kind of social mobility, but I've been knocked off my path so many times. And it's just, it's the hardest, it's like the biggest project of my life is just to get out of poverty. (laughs) That That's about it. Like I probably won't manage to have a family or anything like that. And I just, I just don't want to leave other people behind. I moved out of social housing and into private rental and I was um, sexually assaulted by my private landlord and that was the thing that knocked me off path and I I had to take two years off my studies and I I felt so powerless, like I couldn't really go to the police because of the past sort of interactions I'd had with them and I wanted to take that powerless I felt and doing this sort of thing gives me a sense of agency and visibility. Yeah absolutely and I'm so sorry to hear about that experience. I mean it is sort of this convergence of the power dynamic you know between landlord and tenant but also the power dynamic more broadly between folks who sort of own all of these means and folks who are forced to scrape by on almost nothing It's really just like part of this broader system. And we're seeing this acceleration of, I guess, profit accumulation at the same time as levels of deprivation are growing in Australia. And Erin, as you said, in a country as wealthy as this, the fact that we don't have anything near equitable distribution of wealth is appalling. So I was hoping maybe we could briefly touch on, you know, why it is so important to be centering the lived experience of people that are experiencing poverty and actually being forced to navigate the social security system on a daily basis. I guess anyone's free to sort of jump in first. I think the reason it's so important to centre the voices of people who are actually experiencing poverty is because we know what we need. We know what's causing our problems and we know how to fix them. The fact is having other people speak over us is taking away from us like 
there's certain little things that go into surviving poverty that some people who haven't had that experience don't realise. Like the other week, I actually thought to myself, if you're in a rental, private or public, you're expected to take care of your yards. We don't have money to like pay someone to do it if you're disabled. There's no services that will come and help you to do that. So it's like a million little things that make it harder on us that we could speak about that other people may not get. Absolutely. There's no consideration of the kind of costs of maintaining a tenancy. Erin? Uh, it's crucial because the decisions the government makes about poverty and social security, they don't affect the government. They affect us. They affect the one in eight Australians or about 3.3 million people who actually live in poverty, which includes 760,000 kids. And it affects the more than 5 million people currently relying on income support. So to deny us a voice, it's not on. It's, it's not right. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah, so there's like a narrative about us from politicians and from the media that we're lazy and we're feckless, you know. But when you actually get to know us, we're actually pretty enterprising and motivated people and the system is just denying us you know, that potential for self-actualization instead of us actually being lazy. I think this leads really well into what I wanted to discuss next, which is the idea of welfare conditionality and, you know, things from Workforce Australia to compulsory income management in the form of the basics card and the cashless debit card, which is now being rolled back. Because it seems like there's almost a systemic disincentivization of people accessing welfare when, you know, if you think about welfare as something that's technically meant to be a public good, it's really treated in Australia as a privilege. Mel, did you want to speak to that first? Yeah. So it's actually, instead of alleviating poverty, it's actually stifling social mobility and causing people distress instead of allowing people to sort of recover and improve their situation now. Coming from that place of having lived experience, I'm in that privileged position of being able to research it and the research sort of corroborates what I've experienced, you know, like welfare conditionality didn't help me get to where I am today. The payment did. Obviously, the higher rate of the disability pension, which was livable compared to New Start or Job Seeker, yeah, I remember being forced to go to the job agency and it didn't work at all. I mean, I, I had to do a course um, with Serena Russo and I had no money for food. They made us sit for eight hours a day in a room doing these modules and I went to a sushi place to get one piece of sushi for lunch and I was short 10 cents and they wouldn't let me get it. So I was starving And every day the job agency was getting paid by the government to have people in this course. So they're profiting it off us and we're like this commodity that they churn through. So, yeah, the job agency was getting paid to have us and they put people in there with low levels of literacy who couldn't even use the computers and they were dropping out every day. There was, you know, it's just getting smaller and smaller. 
So it wasn't really doing anyone much good except for Serena Russo. Erin or Melissa, do you also want to speak to that? And I mean, I thought it would be interesting to also continue going down that angle of the sort of extra burdens of welfare conditionality that intersect with experiences of disability. I think it's become so paternalistic that it's actually hindering everyone. For instance, I've been with a DED, so Disability Employment Service, for six years. In that six years, I've asked numerous times for help with the resume. Last week was the first time they helped me with the resume. And that's six years' worth of asking for help. Uh, The resume they've created for me, they've bent the truth quite a lot. So if I do get a job from this resume, I'm not going to have the skills that they've claimed I've had. So I can't see any job kind of lasting once they realise I don't have these skills. I think it's to the point now that the stress, like, for instance, I have a DES appointment on Wednesday Every time I attend, because I can't catch public transport because of my disabilities, that costs me $20 there and back. So I'm literally having to spend what little money I have on appointments that don't help me. They're literally five-minute appointments. They check if I've done my job search and then they tell me to go. The government is spending $7.1 billion dollars on these services and you have to start to wonder if it would be better to get rid of them and give that money directly to the people in poverty. Yeah, it's almost like there's this sunk cost fallacy as we've seen a sort of change in government. There's both, you know, a bipartisan rationale that things need to stay the way they are, but there's also such a large network of employment service providers that have contracts with government that it seems like it's been put in the too hard basket to reform the social security system, even when that's so desperately needed. Erin, did you want to jump in? Yeah, like like Melissa, I'm with Des. I was with the one debt provider for four years, and apart from sending me on a course to, to get a cert three in community services, they did nothing. Recently, I asked them to pay for my working with children check renewal because I can't afford it myself. It's $80. I can't afford that. And they said, unless you've got a job lined up, you can go whistle. We're not paying for it. There is actually an international covenant on economic, social, cultural rights with the United Nations General Assembly. Article 9 enshrines the right to social security. And Australia pays you that covenant, but the government does everything in its power to dissuade us from accessing it. And when we do manage to access it, we're punished for the supposed crime of being unemployed, sick or disabled. That's what this is. It is punishment. We're being punished because we need help. I think that's a perfect way to encapsulate how people are disincentivized from accessing Social Security because there are real concerns about whether there's any kind of political will to change the Social Security system as it currently is. So on that topic, I was wondering, you know, how would you like to see this country's Social Security system change? And what are some of the immediate things that the federal government should be doing to alleviate poverty? Erin, did you want to jump in first? Yes, sure. 
raised all income support payments, job seeker, disability support pension, age pension, everything, above the Henderson Poverty Line, which is about $88 a day, and to permanently abolish mutual obligations. That includes Work for the Dole and the Community Development Program. That would do the most right now to alleviate poverty. Well, I think we've got to recognise that all of these issues like, you know, sexual assault against women and Aboriginal rights are actually entwined with economic disempowerment as well. And they're all, you know, big important issues, whereas sort of poverty, you know, people don't really mention it as much, but they're all actually entwined because Aboriginal people have been dispossessed and they have less wealth. And, you know, their homes were were taken away from them. And there's sexual assault as well. Economic imbalances affect that, obviously, in my case. So what do I think? I think we should get rid of mutual obligations and we should regulate the private rental market and probably get rid of the stage three tax cuts and build mass public housing again to decommodify housing. So I would say I've got quite a few ideas on how we can literally eradicate poverty for many, but to touch on something Mel said, and from my own experience, poverty also puts children in danger of sexual assault. Um, I was sexually abused by a neighbour who literally preyed on the fact that me and my single mother at the time were in poverty. He would offer to help with groceries. He would offer to help with things that my mother could not afford. At the same time, he was abusing me, which put me in a situation at 11 of I either speak up and the help stops and we go hungry, or I say nothing, let it continue, and we get financial help, which no child should be put in that position. No woman should be put in that position. But I think what we could do is raise income support above the Henderson poverty line. That's the first thing. The second thing is build public housing, put in rental caps for private housing, And I would like to see mutual obligations abolished at becoming voluntary and all of those job providers actually having to do a care-based approach where you could go into a job provider and they will help you by you being able to speak to a careers advisor or getting help with mental health them being able to refer you on to other services if need be. I think education, including TAFE, should be free. Basically, people should be able to study what they want to study. I think if we put things into place now, in five years, we could completely eradicate poverty. And for the next generation, that's the most important thing going forward. Yeah, and I think the proposals that you've all mentioned involve this massive amount of social investment and actually, you know, like seriously considering and valuing the humanity of everyone and especially the humanity of folks who are currently relying on welfare payments as their primary source of income. 
I think the way that the system is set up now, as you've described, really seems to be built on dehumanization. And I guess I was also maybe wondering if we could quickly touch on some of the sort of band-aid solutions that are being put forward, whether this is in the form of marginal reforms to the social security system or things that put a sort of progressive veneer on more of the same kind of policies that are being applied, you know, whether saying we care about mental health or the idea of the measuring what matters and well-being budget that's meant to come out this year with no real consideration of the experiences of people that are living in poverty. Melissa, do you want to jump in on that first? I find that very, very telling how the spin is always put on it as being good, helpful. Like, for instance, just this morning I had someone tell me that we've had a raise. Labor said that we had a raise. What they're not realising is it's indexation and the CPI. It's not an actual raise. It's just trying to keep up with the cost of living, which it's not. But it's always this spin that they care. And then when it comes to actually putting in policies, it shows that they don't. Because I swear they, like the policies, are none of it is actually geared towards job seekers or people in poverty. Like we've had the childcare where they've included people on 500k a year to getting subsidies for childcare. They're saying about cheaper medications right now. That's all geared towards like working people because people on pensions or in poverty, their scripts have just gone up by 50 cents. So like once you dig deeper into what they're saying, none of it is actually helping those in poverty. It's all geared towards working people and rich people. Yeah, totally. It it relies on the assumption that you already have, you know, this threshold amount of wealth or capital or assets behind you and that you already have access to a variety of things and then provides the top up on top of that. Erin, did you want to go next? At the moment I'm working on an application for the, for the disability support pension because I can't work. If mutual obligations helped, I would have a job by now, but I'm honestly, I'm too disabled to work full-time. So I need to get assessments done. I need to see a clinical psychologist to prove that, yes, I need to be on the disability support pension. Yes, my anxiety is so severe that I cannot work full-time. And to do that, I would need probably thousands of dollars to pay for appointments. But fortunately, my local university has a psychology clinic staffed by psychology students. I could basically see a psychologist there for like $100 something. But the fact that I have to go see university students to get the assessment I need because I can't afford it otherwise, it's just wrong. Mental health care needs to be free across the board. We can't afford it otherwise. Like they're dropping the free sessions from 20, like what has been during the pandemic, down to 10 like it was before. That's not nearly enough. Like, even on 20, if I wanted to access appointments with a psychologist, I would need to spread them out like once every two weeks. Otherwise, I'd run out within six months. They're punishing us by saying, no, you don't get to have the sessions you need because you're accessing too many of them. No, screw you. Yeah, the idea that that needs to be rationed is just so egregious. Like you should be able to access the amount of medical care that you need rather than having to do this calculation as to whether there will be part of the year where you go without support. 
in the research that I've been doing, I've actually been working as well and experiencing welfare conditionality at the same time. So my mental health actually improved substantially after I was moved onto the disability pension and all conditionality was stopped. And I was actually able to pursue study and work at my own pace without being forced into something by a job agency. My um, caseworker at the job agency said, oh, you're not capable of a cert too. So I'm now doing a PhD. And something we've been looking at as an alternative sort of way to pay people is a universal basic income. There's different versions of it, but it removes a lot of means testing and conditionality and pays people at a livable level. And we've just been looking at some of the trials of that, and that is like an alternative paradigm to the old welfare state from the 20th, the 19th and 20th centuries. And I mean, something that gets me is I finally made it <laughs> to the minimum wage. So every time I earn money, I get income tested and the income tests are so stingy. It's like they only let you earn about $177 a fortnight before they start taking 50 cents for the dollar that you earn. So you end up paying these high marginal tax rates. I mean, why does, why does our welfare system not allow people with the least means and the most marginalised people to build up financial resilience? Like I'm stinging trying to save up to pay to go to the dentist, which is obviously a privilege, but geez, I just think they, they could, you know, make it a bit more generous. When I was unqualified, it was an even bigger disincentive to work because my wages were lower. So it, it hurts people on lower wages even more. Mel, I think speaking to that disincentive is so important here as well, because it also kind of speaks back to the fact that there's a lot of rhetoric sort of across the political spectrum about entrenched disadvantage and people being stuck in a, quote, cycle or, quote, intergenerational welfare dependence is a term that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah, they, they say that, oh, it's like a disease. It's like a culture that's transmitted from parent to child. But actually, the welfare system keeps knocking you down and you can't build up wealth. I mean, you can have like $5,000. That's all you're allowed to have before you're eligible for job seeker. Is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with and including listeners whose lived experiences might overlap with your own? I would actually like to say this whole argument about raising income support. What I think a lot of people miss is the savings to things like Medicare, uh, social services would be huge if people were out of poverty. For instance, in November, I was diagnosed with malnutrition and scurvy. My body is no longer able to fight infections like it was before. In the last Four months, I've been hospitalised three times. Now that's all on Medicare because I can't afford to eat the proper food and get the proper nutrients I need and my body needs. It's literally costing the government more money through Medicare and, you know, social services and things like that. So I would like to see maybe a proactive approach. 
Yeah, I, I concur. Like, I think I was more expensive for the government when I was on the dole because I was sick, you know. Yeah, I, I actually I ended up in hospital four or five years ago because I had an infected tooth. I ended up in hospital for a weekend on antibiotics because I couldn't afford the dentist. They got that bad that I ended up in hospital. With an infected tooth, my face was swollen up and I needed IV antibiotics for a weekend to get that infection to go down. Exactly. Uh, this whole thing is if they really, really wanted to save costs, then they would take the proactive approach. Raise people out of poverty so they could see the dentist so we could eat the proper food. We could take care of our own health. Like during the COVID supplement, my health issues were not what they are now. Like I joined the gym for the swimming pool just so I could exercise. I ate properly. All my health issues improved. It improved to the point that I was looking at studying, like leaving the house to go to TAFE and stuff. And now I'm back at square one because I'm back in deep poverty. Probably worse now because of the cost of living. Yeah, same. My biggest stressor, which was my low income, vanished like that. It was gone. So I had the anxiety. I will have that for the rest of my life. But I was not depressed. And as soon as my income started going down again, my mental health went down with it, my depression returned, and it's now back in the gut where I was. And I'm actually actively suicidal because of it. Yeah, look, I mean, thank you for sharing that. It is, I, I don't even have words for that because it's just unbelievable, again, that in such a rich country, people are pushed to the brink of suicide because they are so devalued as humans by their own government. Yeah. So it's it's really simple, just pay people enough to live off and that would reduce costs in other areas. Mental health would improve, you know, like it, it's easily the most effective intervention. It's just because if you give people enough money to live off, they can have a vision for the future, you know, and start planning ahead. To quote Chasing Fire by Suzanne Collins, remember who the real enemy is. It's the government because poverty is literally a policy choice. They could easily end poverty anytime, but they will not. And that needs to change. Thank you all so much for making the time to speak with me, to share this expertise, and also, you know, just be out there sharing your own voices and analyses of poverty in Australia, because I can only imagine how valuable it is to so many people who are in the same boat and don't, you know, necessarily feel comfortable sharing their own stories as well. And no worries. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today on Women on the Line. Today's episode featured Aaron Brown, Melissa Fisher and Mel, who all shared their expert analyses of the state of welfare in Australia based on their lived experience navigating the social security system. Our conversation did touch on some distressing topics, so please remember that if you need to talk to someone, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. That's 1300 659 467. You can also contact 1800 Respect, the National Counseling Line for Sexual Assault, Family and Domestic Violence 
on 1-800-737-732. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on unceded Kulin Nation's land. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network, and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Our theme music is by Ripley Kavara, and past programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Priya Kunjan, and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.